<laughs> Don't tell him. That. Are we recording already? Oops. All right. No, not really. But he has been uh, talking about this really difficult passage in James. He's mentioned it a couple of different times as we've gone through the series. And guess when that is? It's today. Yeah. He left that one for me. So uh, thank you, Derek. How many of you are uh, ready for a chemistry pop quiz? Oh, some people feel ready. Okay, all right. Some people are ready. This is super easy, but if you don't know it, don't feel bad. Because uh, if you didn't ever do chemistry, this is going to be a foreign language. But what is the chemical equation for ordinary table salt? NaCl. NaCl. All right, good. Several people got that answer. So what are those two elements, the Na and the Cl? What are the Sodium and chlorine chloride when it's together with the sodium, right? Yeah? I don't know. You can correct me if I'm wrong. All right. Uh, so we got sodium and chlorine. Now, what would happen if you had a shaker of sodium and a shaker of chlorine on your table? Would that be a good idea? No, bad idea, right? It's a bad idea. Because if you have um, powdered sodium, it's highly explosive in water. Food tends to have some liquid in it, right? So you shake that on your food, you might have an exploding something. Uh, it's also a poison when it's combined with lots of other elements. So no shaker of powdered sodium for me on my table, thank you. Um, chlorine in its natural state is exceedingly poisonous and has an extremely foul, suffocating odor. So we don't want any chlorine on our tables, but when you put the two together, you get NaCl, ordinary table salt, something that we pretty much all have in our house somewhere, even if you're trying to cut back, you still have it. Actually, salt is necessary for life. It's an ingredient that we need in our bodies to, to keep things working the way they're supposed to, just not too much of it, right? So when you put the two together, it's not only not poisonous, um, it's something greater than the sum of its parts. And there's a word for that. The word for that is synergy. So when two things that are separate come together and make something better or greater than the sum of their parts, that's called synergy. And today we're talking about the synergy of faith and works because in the Christian life, those things func function similar to table salt together, faith and works. Because a lot of church-going people think they have saving faith. But actually, they're more like powdered sodium or chlorine because they, they, didn't quite, they don't quite have it right. Um, belief in a religious creed or a, a statement isn't good enough to bring salvation. Just believing it in your mind is not good enough to bring salvation. And good works on their own can be like a poison. If you try to earn your way to God, they're never good enough. You can never make it. They're never good enough to bring salvation. But true saving faith always works itself out in our actions as we live our life. So we're going to try to figure out how to make all this make sense today. We're going to see there's really no contradiction between faith and works. Instead, there's this interdependence. There's a synergy between faith and works that's necessary for spiritual life. Just like table salt's necessary for our physical life, faith and works together show something that's necessary for our spiritual life. So let's pray together and then we'll dive into James chapter 2. God, I just thank you so much for today. 
I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth that you reveal to us. I thank you for the writer, James, and what he's going to tell us this morning. And I thank you for how we can compare that to what the Apostle Paul says in other parts of the New Testament. And we can put those things together and we can really understand what it means to have saving faith in you. Thank you for the opportunity of faith. Thank you that you draw us to this place today. You have something you want to say, that you want to do in each and every person's life that's here this morning. I just pray, God, that we would be open to whatever you want to say or do in us. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so James chapter 2, if you're using the Bibles that are here uh, in the cages or in front of you or under your seat, it's going to be on page 1114. Is that a 1114 is what I'd say. So 1114, if you want to find it in the Bibles that are there, handy for you. Um, and it's James chapter 2, starting with verse 14. I'm just going to read the first few verses to start with. James says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also... Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Okay, so that's a little tough right off the bat, isn't it? And that's what Derek was talking about when he said this is a tough passage. Um, it's important that we keep in mind who he's writing to. So we know from the very first verse in the book of James that his audience is Jewish believers who have been under persecution. That's the new church after Jesus ascended to heaven, the new church, and they've been dispersed because of all the persecution that they were facing um, after all of that happened. Um, these are people that are followers of Jesus, but they're kind of new to it, and they're kind of scared, and they kind of don't know what it means to really follow Jesus. And James is like discipleship 101. James wants to say, here's what it is, and he answers several different questions. How is a follower of Christ supposed to live? Um, how to look and live like Jesus in this world. People struggling with how to live out their new identity in Christ. And the, the question he tackles right here is what role do works play in the Christian life? How do we, how do we make this all make sense? What role do good deeds um, pay, play in the Christian life? And he tackles this in the first little section that we read by looking at worth or usefulness. What good is faith if it doesn't have deeds? Right? What good is faith without works? And his conclusion is that it's useless, it's worthless, it's unable to save. I don't like to hear that. So how can we, how can we define this true saving faith? How can we know that the faith we have is not like James is describing? Well, for faith to truly be saving faith, it must believe in the right thing for the expected result leading to an appropriate action. So I'm going to explain that a little bit. Because I can have faith in all kinds of things for all kinds of reasons, but they would not be saving faith. We, we exercise faith all the time in different things. You get in your car, you turn the key, you expect it to start, right? There's a level of faith there in that action. Uh, you may have less faith in your car than other people might because of experiences you've had, but there's still hopefully a level of faith there. I can believe that Jesus was a great teacher, that's true. It's a true statement, but it's not saving faith. 
I can believe that I can find salvation through a wooden idol in my house if I just devote enough time on my knees before this wooden idol. But that's not believing in the correct source, right? That's incorrect. True saving faith comes by believing in Jesus for salvation and surrendering our lives to him. It's a right belief in the right person leading to an appropriate action. So this faith is a belief in something that drives our will to action, and it's got to be directed to the right source for the correct result. That's tough to hear. It sounds exclusionary, and it is. That's why it's so important for us to live in a way that shows others that having faith in Jesus really does make a difference, really is something that changes our life. So now, back to James. He proposes that faith that does not lead to action is not actually saving faith. And he gives us an illustration to kind of drive home this point. He talks about someone that has a need, that doesn't have what they need physically. He's, and this is purposeful hyperbole, like exaggerated language right here on the part of James, because he sees treating the needy like this as completely ridiculous. Like, you would, you would never do this, he's, in his mind. This person is completely desperate, and James shows the person of faith verbally wishing them well, but doing nothing to actually help. And when the person says, go in peace, be warm and filled, that's kind of a Jewish goodbye. They're just kind of saying goodbye. It'd be like us walking past someone and saying, take it easy, or see ya. I don't know how you say goodbye, but those are, those are some different ways. So just walking past the person that's in ultimate need and acknowledging them and just saying, see ya, right? It does absolutely nothing to address the desperate need of the person. And James appropriately says it is useless. It's no good. That does nothing to help the person. And then he hits us right between the eyes with this statement that faith without works is dead. Let's look at that phrase for just a minute because there's a couple of important things about it. He's not denying that there is faith. He says there's a level of faith. It's faith without works. That makes it even harder to hear, in my mind. Um, and he's not saying that good works are the way to salvation. Again, you could never earn your way through works to find peace with God. It's not possible. He is, however, attempting to demonstrate that any faith without the accompanying good deeds is not the right kind of faith. It's not a living faith. It's not a saving faith. Because actions are a natural fruit in a person with saving faith. So when we truly believe in Jesus for forgiveness and salvation, we are reborn. The Bible says we are a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. There is a death. It's a death of sin and self, and it leads to new life. And G James says that new life is going to show up in our actions. That change that Christ has made in you is going to show up in your actions. And he continues to reinforce this argument in the next couple of verses. So if you uh, look down to verse 18 of chapter 2, we continue with what he says. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So what's he trying to say right here? You'll notice um, that your Bible probably has quotation marks around the phrase, you have faith and I have works. Um, they didn't have quotation marks in the original writing. 
That's something translators have done to help us kind of understand the literary tools that uh, James is using here. What's happening is there's another voice coming in to the conversation right there. It's kind of a, a detractor, an opposer. It's almost like a heckler that says this little part in quotes. Um, they sh they're basically shouting, come on, James, faith and works aren't necessarily related to each other. Be like if I was preaching along and you disagreed with something and you just shouted out. Uh, that's kind of what's going on here. And James responds to this challenge by saying, there's no way for faith to be demonstrated other than action. He says, I'll show you my faith by my works. It's going to show up in my life. A mere statement of faith proves nothing. Faith is what we do. It's not what we say we will do. And this is super important. Faith is what we do, not what we say we will do. Because as we all know, actions speak louder than words, don't they? Do you know the, uh, the science of, of communication? They have this rule, and as I was studying, some people say it's a rule and some people say it's a, it's a myth. Um, but I've heard this for a lot of my life, that 7% of communication is what you say. 38% is how you say it, the tone of voice. And 55% is your body language as you say it. So 93% of communication, of the meaning that the person receives when you're talking to them, 93% has nothing to do with what comes out of your mouth. That's a little scary, <laughs> but you know this to be true. If I came home and I saw my wife, Jennifer, and I said, I love you. <laughs> now, would she receive that as a positive affirmation of my affection and love for her? No, right? <laughs> I said the right word. Uh, or, or what if I just came home and didn't say anything and sat in my chair and watched TV until it was time to go to sleep? Is that communicating love? No, no it's not. <laughs> a lot of people try it that way, doesn't, doesn't work out too well. Um, so what we say is a part of the meaning, but it's a very small part. Just like in communication, what we do brings more to the conversation than what we say. And James would say that works demonstrate evidence of a saving faith that's alive in you a saving faith that's alive in the individual. And in verse 19, he doubles down on this idea. Remember, he's talking to Jewish believers. So when he says this phrase, you believe God is one, this is a foundational Jewish belief taken straight out of the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 6.4. It's something they would say as a statement of faith with one another. It would get an amen at all the Jewish sermons. All right, if you said God is one, everybody like, yeah, okay. So this was like one of their... <laughs> That never happens at our church, does it? Uh, one of those foundational Jewish beliefs. Um, and James says, it's great that you believe that. It's great that you say that. But it's not a saving belief. It's not a saving faith. It's a right belief. But if you expect that to save you, it's a wrong expectation. Because the demons believe the same thing, and they're afraid. <laughs> It's not, it's not a belief that saves. The demons knew who Jesus was. We know this because of a couple of interactions in the New Testament. They recognized him as the Son of God, but it only brought fear. It did not bring peace with God. Saving faith is more than just accepting a spiritual truth. James says true saving faith is accepted intellectually, but then it's acted on willfully because of what God does in you. 
it will express itself outwardly in a changed life. And so James felt like his readers may still not be convinced. And so he gives another example, starting in verse 20. He says, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, ouch, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. All right, so what in the world is going on here? We've got the example of Abraham. Abraham, known as the father of the Jews. Abraham was a hero, okay? Very well known to all of the readers that um, James would have been addressing. And he's very blunt when he says to those that aren't still convinced that faith and works go together, he, he calls them foolish. And in this context, that word actually means someone that has no comprehension of spiritual truth. Okay? It's a, it's a tough word. Um, and he wants to make it obvious that saving faith is going to be demonstrated by works. So he uses this example of the hero Abraham. And he makes what might sound like a very opposite statement to what Paul would say in one of his letters. Um, James says that Abraham was justified by his works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. And again, every Jewish reader would know this story, but I want to give you the short version so that we're on the same page. It comes from Genesis chapter 22. If you want to go read it for yourself later, Genesis 22 is where this event happens in the Old Testament. But some backstory, Abraham had been promised by God to be the father of many nations. He was old, and his wife was past childbearing age, but God fulfilled that promise and gave them a son when they were about 100 years old. That son's name was Isaac. When Isaac was still a boy, God told Abraham to take him up on a mountainside and offer him as a sacrifice. That's exactly what it sounds like, to kill him as an expression of his devotion to God. And Abraham obeyed. He took Isaac on the journey. Isaac even noticed as they were going on this journey that they didn't have anything to sacrifice, and he asked his dad about it. Hey, Dad, where's the sacrifice? Where's the animal? And Abraham's response was, God will provide. So he has faith in God in that moment. Um, he gets all the way to holding the knife to his son. How could he possibly do that? Well, we get a little glimpse of it from the writer of Hebrews because he references this also. He says, He, Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him, Isaac, from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So Abraham had so much faith in God, keeping his promise to make him a father of many nations, that he believed even if he killed Isaac, even if he sacrificed Isaac, God could bring him back to fulfill his promise, um, even if it meant bringing him back from the dead. It really makes no sense. It really doesn't. But that's how strong his faith was in God and his belief in God's promises. But God stopped him. In that moment when he was about to sacrifice Isaac, God stopped him and provided a ram that they could sacrifice instead. He saw that Abraham's faith was so strong that he would not withhold his only son. And James says that that event shows that Abraham was justified by works in the moment that he was willingly offering up his son. Now the Apostle Paul says Abraham was justified by his faith. But he's talking about 
stuff that happened in Genesis 15. So this gets a little confusing. So James is talking about Genesis 22. Paul's talking about Genesis 15. And here's what's great. James quotes Genesis 15 when he says the scripture was fulfilled in that moment when he was willing to offer his sacrifice of his son. Uh, Genesis 15, 6 was fulfilled. He's quoting Genesis 15, 6, the same verses that Paul is referencing when he talks about Abraham. So uh, Abraham believes in God's promise to make him the father of a great nation in Genesis 15, even though there's no evidence. He has no heir. He has no family. He doesn't even know where he's going. And he's, God says, go to a place where I'm going to show you. And he obediently goes. But, um, and in that moment, God counted to him as righteousness. Okay? He was righteous at that point. But James takes it one step further and says, that faith was proven it showed itself in the events of Genesis 22. We know it was real because of what we see Abraham do in Genesis 22. And he takes it even a step further and says, this brings him the designation friend of God. His actions show that the difference in his life from his faith in God is living it out as he continues to serve him. So how do we work out these contradictions? Was Abraham justified by faith or was he justified by works? How can we look at James 2.24 where this summary statement, he says, you see a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And then we see verses like Ephesians 2.8 and 9 where Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. Those sound like they don't go together. How can we make those two fit together? Well, real quick, let's look at James's other example and then we're going to try to make this all make sense. He goes from the hero Abraham, any Jew that hears Abraham is giving his Jew neighbor a high five. This guy's the hero, okay? They love this guy. And then he goes to the prostitute Rahab, and she would not have gotten the same kind of reaction. Um, but James says she's also an example of faith in verses 25 and 26. In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works? when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. He says it again. Rahab is justified by her works. She received some Hebrew spies. She hid them. She helped them escape out of the city of Jericho so they wouldn't be killed. And in return, when they came and took over the city, uh, her family was, her life and her family's life was spared by the Jews when they conquered. So she risked her life to protect the spies. Her faith moved her to action in that moment, despite the personal risk. If she'd been found out, she would have been killed by the people of the city. And he closes this argument after talking about Rahab by saying again, faith without works is dead. Just like a body without a spirit is a corpse. Faith without accompanying works is no more alive. Faith and works are inseparable. So back to our question. Are we justified by faith or are we justified by works? James says Abraham and Rahab were declared righteous by what they did. But again, look at verse 22. James says that Abraham's faith was active along with his works and completed by his works. He's not trying to set up an either-or scenario. He's describing a both-and scenario. Faith and works are inseparable. 
James is saying it's impossible for you to have genuine saving faith in Jesus without it showing up in your life. And he's at the same time saying it's impossible to find saving faith through your works alone. Okay? This Greek word that's translated active along with in that verse is the word synergeo. What does that sound like? Sounds like synergy, right? There is a synergy between faith and works, just like our table salt example. Faith or belief by itself is good. It's important we start with right belief, but on its own, it can really be dangerous and even misleading because we think we have things figured out because we know some stuff, right? We have some knowledge. We think we've got things figured out. But just having some knowledge is, has no power to save. Look at who Jesus had the hardest time with, the Pharisees, right? Who were the Pharisees? They were the keepers of right belief for their day. That was their role. They set up the laws. They made sure people followed them. They told you what it meant to, to be a follower of God and to, and to do it in the correct way. He called them whitewashed tombs. So a tomb has what on the inside? Death. He said, you look good on the outside, but inside there's death and decay. It sounds a lot like faith without works is dead. At the same time, again, works by themselves cannot save you. You can work hard your whole life. You can go to church every time it's open. No matter how hard you try, you try your good works don't measure up. They're actually described in Isaiah 64, 6 as filthy rags when it comes to their ability to cover your sin. And this, those words, filthy rags, if think of the dirtiest, filthiest thing you can think of, that's what it's describing. There's no chance that our works can cover our sin. The arrogant attempt to work your way to God is futile, and it's even offensive to Him. Only God can make us righteous. But together, faith and works reveal something greater, a living, right relationship with God because of salvation that can only be found in Jesus. True saving faith comes through belief in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, accepting that only He has the power to forgive your sin and restore your relationship with God, and then surrendering your life to Him, your will to Him as Savior and Lord. Let's look again. I, I went over these verses really quick, but I want to look at Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 a little more closely. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Okay, this is very clear. You cannot work your way to salvation. It only comes by grace through faith. It's nothing you can do or earn. So you can't take any credit for what only God can do. The thing is, that's where a lot of people stop. And there's a verse 10 right after verse 9. Let's look at that very next word, uh, verse. Paul says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So he says, yeah, salvation is by faith alone, but Paul expects that good works are going to be a part of our life. He says that God set it up that way. He prepared it beforehand. Uh, we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works. He goes immediately from justification by faith alone to works. So Paul says justification is by faith alone. And James agrees. James says that true saving faith results in works. 
Paul agrees. Okay, there is no conflict. There's just a different point of emphasis. When Paul says justification, he's emphasizing the moment we are declared righteous when we put our faith in Jesus. When James says justification, he's talking about the proof of that faith, the proof of our right standing before God that's evidenced through our life because it's been changed. We have a changed life, changed actions because of what God has done in us in that moment. Uh, Leslin Mush says it this way, Faith is not simply an idea separate from real life. Rather, faith is to produce in us right living, right motives, right thinking, right relationships. Our good works confirm that faith is alive and active in us. They are working together to produce something greater in us than they can separately. They are in synergy, not conflict. True saving faith moves the heart and regulates the life. A faith that believes in the right thing for the right thing. And saving faith believes in Jesus for salvation and eternal life. You're not saved by faith plus works. I want to make that clear. It's not faith plus works. You're saved by your faith in Jesus. And then he does the work. He does the changing. And it will bear itself out in your life. Why does that happen? Because when you truly surrender your life to Jesus as Savior, God moves in. God indwells you. He literally lives inside you through the gift of the Holy Spirit. In John 14, 12, Jesus says, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. And then in verse 16, he says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, speaking of the Holy Spirit. So not only do James and Paul agree about this faith and works, but Jesus expresses the idea that true saving faith will lead to works through the power of the Holy Spirit. He says we'll do even greater things than he did. So the question this morning is a pivotal one. It's a difficult one. But do you have saving faith in Jesus? Have you trusted in his life, death, and resurrection, accepting that only he has the power to forgive your sin and restore your relationship with God and surrendered your life and will to his as Lord and Savior. That's the number one question that we all have to deal with, that we all have to answer. It's the thing that James is addressing to these new believers that have been dispersed, these new Jewish believers. And one of our five values as a church says the goal is life change. Now, why would we phrase it that way? Why would we spend a lot of time, a lot of hours hashing over these values and end up with that statement, the goal is life change? The reason is pretty simple and lines up with this passage because the Great Commission is not to convince people to agree to doctrinal statements or join a club to receive some benefits. The Great Commission is to see people come to saving faith in Jesus that will work itself out in their lives through discipleship and obedience. True life change begins with saving faith in Jesus and there's no other way. So I'd like to invite you this morning. We're going to do it a little different. I'd like to invite you to bow your heads. This is not our normal um, way we close out the service. But I want to ask you this question, and I want to ask you to allow God to reveal to you the answer to this most important question. Do you have saving faith in Jesus? Does your life show that synergy that James is describing between faith and works? as you live your life of obedience to Him? Is God trying to maybe get your attention today? 
We would not be loving you well. We would not be leading you well if we didn't give you a chance to respond to that question. If you're ready to find saving faith and feel that God is prompting you to make that decision, I'd like to lead you in a prayer. There's nothing magical about these words, I want to be clear, but it allows you to express an acceptance of God's calling to salvation in your life. God is the one that, that calls you to salvation. And this allows us to express an acceptance of that call. So if that's you today, I invite you to pray this with me. Dear God, I know that I'm a sinner, and I believe in Jesus. I believe he lived a perfect life. I believe he died the death that I deserve on the cross. I believe he rose again three days later so that he could offer forgiveness and eternal life. I surrender myself to Jesus as Lord and Savior today, and I will live for him from this day forward. If that's you, if you prayed that prayer today, we want to know that. We want to be able to walk you through some next steps of what it means to follow Jesus. In a minute when we're responding to God, you can take your program and you can just write faith on your connect card and drop it in the response box. Or you can check a box that says, I want to know more about following Jesus or I followed Jesus today, whatever the words are. Just, just let us know so we can follow up with you. Maybe today you're unsure. Maybe this caused a lot of questions and uh, you're not sure where you stand in your spiritual journey. You can just write unsure on your connect card. Let us help you. Um, figure out what the answers to some of those questions might be. Even now, as we respond to what God is saying to us, there will be people in the back that would love to talk with you and pray with you. Um, they're easy to spot. They stand on either side of the booth in the back, ready to pray, ready to talk. You can come forward, and you can write a prayer request and put it on the wall. We want to know somehow what God is saying to you and how we can help you take those next steps. Also today, we're having communion which is a way for us to remember what Jesus did for us when he took that punishment for our sin on the cross. His body was broken. His blood was spilled, making possible this faith, this forgiveness of our sin, and the offering of eternal life in right relationship with God. We're remembering that. We're thanking God for that today as we come forward and do that, this saving faith that we've been talking about. So our prayer for you more than anything is that you would have that saving faith in Jesus that changes your life the thing that only God can do that you can't take any credit for um, and that you'll share that then with others so that they can find that as well. Let's pray together. God, I thank you so much for today for the truth of saving faith. God, what an important thing to be confident in. God, I pray if there's those today that have questions that may not know where they stand with you that they would have the courage to seek someone out, to write on their Connect card, uh, to, to respond in some way so that we can help them move forward in those steps. God, if there's people that have questions, I pray you'd give them the courage to ask them. Father, it's a, it is a tough passage. It causes us to evaluate. It causes us to look inward. And I pray, God, that uh, for those that have saving faith, it would be an encouragement for those that don't, maybe today would be the day that they say yes to the calling you've placed on their life. As we continue to worship, as we continue to respond to you, God, I just pray that your presence would be in this place 
that what people feel and hear and experience would be you and you alone. And it is in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So as we continue to sing this morning, you can come forward, you can respond to God. As we do communion, you can come down these aisles and pick up the elements. You can go back to your seat. You can take them right there. Whatever works best for you. More than anything, though, we want to be responding to God over these next few moments.